millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. He koonai purangi tēnei nā te reo irirangi o Aotearoa. Us New Zealanders like to think of ourselves as a pretty relaxed bunch by global standards. We think we're just sitting here in our quiet, isolated islands, far away from the world's great geopolitical conflicts. But that isn't the case. In the context of the Pacific, Aotearoa is a big player. And if our 19th century administrators and politicians had had their way, it could have been a lot bigger. During the 19th century, New Zealand's leaders had a vision of a massive Pacific empire and dreamed of controlling places as far apart as Fiji, Hawaii and Rapanui. And parts of that dream came true, although for some it was more like a nightmare. By the 1920s, the empire of Aotearoa stretched over millions of square kilometres of ocean and ruled tens of thousands of people in Samoa, the Cook Islands, Tokelau and Niue. So, for our final episode of this season... We're sailing deep into Te Moana Nui Akiwa to look at the history of New Zealand's Pacific Empire. Ko Mani Dunlop tēnei. Ko William Ray tēnei. And this is the Aotearoa History Show. Smoke bombs have been thrown on to Eden Park. Smoke bombs, flares, being an attempt to come onto the field. Last night, a most grievous railway accident place We are marching to Parliament and no more land to be sold. The connections between Aotearoa and the rest of the Pacific go far back into history. Aotearoa was just one of hundreds of islands visited and inhabited by Polynesian peoples over the thousands of years they spent sailing back and forth across this ocean before Europeans arrived. Given that history, it's not surprising that Māori and other indigenous people of the Pacific feel a deep connection, or hononga, and share a lot in common in terms of language, culture and our worldview. And we have deep whakapapa licks. I pūtake take ake te iwi Māori i Hawaiki mai anō, i te moana nui akiwa. I kia ai te kōrero, ko Māui, ko Kupenuku, ko Ngai Tātou, hiuri moana nui akiwa, areare no tāhiti māreare. Unfortunately, we don't have space in this episode to tell the full story of the Pacific. That's a very long history and a very big ocean. Indeed it is. So instead, we're just going to carve off a small but incredibly impactful part of that history. How New Zealand politicians, nationalists and imperialists sought to control the other islands of the Pacific during the 19th and 20th century. And the impacts that that had on the people living on those islands. Okay, so whose idea was it for New Zealand to broaden its Pacific footprint in the first place? Well, it goes way back. Even James Cook hinted at the idea during his first voyage to Aotearoa. He wrote in his journal that... 
New Zealand might become the seat of a great Pacific commerce. Over the next century, a lot of powerful Brits echoed Cook's words. The strongest promoter of the idea was probably Charles Buller, spokesman for the New Zealand Company, who told Britain's Parliament that... A British colony in New Zealand would be the natural master of this ocean. Its position would command the Pacific. Its numerous harbours would supply shelters. Its vast forest materials for the greatest navy in the world. And from that new seat of your dominion, you might give laws and manners to a new world. In short, Charles Buller was describing a vision for New Zealand as the Britain of the South Pacific. It's a phrase which became very popular with New Zealand imperialists later in the 19th century. The idea was that these islands would be both a colony of the British Empire and also the hub for a wider New Zealand-led Pacific Empire. They probably imagined this empire growing slowly over time, but funnily enough, the largest extent of New Zealand's territory was shortly after the Treaty of Waitangi was signed, and that was down to a typo. The northernmost point of the North Island is about 34 degrees south of the equator, but when British officials first described the territory of New Zealand in official reports, they accidentally set the boundary at 34 degrees north of the equator. And that is almost as far north as Tokyo. This meant the territory of New Zealand technically included most of Fiji, large parts of New Caledonia and Vanuatu, and tons of other islands in Melanesia. In 1846, Governor George Grey seized on that mistake in an attempt to block the French from annexing New Caledonia and Vanuatu, insisting they'd already been claimed as British territory. The colonial office stepped in to say that while Grey was technically right, they weren't about to get into a territorial dispute with France over a typo. But Governor Grey wasn't done. In 1847, he urged the British colonial secretary to take control of Fiji and Tonga. And in 1852, he drew up plans for a hypothetical invasion of French-controlled Tahiti using mostly Māori troops. Governor Gray's arguments were very popular with settlers in New Zealand and Australia, as well as with some Māori. After all, any new French colonies were potential bases which could be used to attack them if Britain and France went to war again. But the authorities back in the UK thought annexing more Pacific islands would be a strategic mistake, as the British colonial secretary wrote in 1872... We've had quite enough isolated stations to defend in case of war, and by adding to them, shall only add to the points open to an enemy attack... The idea of a Pacific Empire ruled from New Zealand was put on hold for much of the 1850s and 60s. Sir George Grey and other colonial leaders were busy dealing with internal issues like the New Zealand wars, gold rushes and the establishment of self-government. And authorities back in Britain were busy with uprisings and rebellions in India and Jamaica, as well as the aftermath of the US Civil War. Still, missionaries were sent out into the Pacific and trade slowly increased. So once the dramas of the 1850s and 60s were over, the idea of a New Zealand-run Pacific Empire came roaring back. Its loudest advocates were politicians like George Grey, Julius Vogel, Robert Stout and Richard Seddon, all of whom served as Premier of New Zealand at one point or another. And their ideas were popular. As Professor Damon Salesa wrote... Almost all politicians, including Tangata Whenua MPs who spoke on the concern, were committed to New Zealand's Pacific expansion. 
there were few opponents of a Pacific empire, and disagreements only reflected reservations over particular efforts or tactics, not principles. If those imperialist administrators and politicians in Aotearoa had their way, islands as far afield as New Caledonia, Hawaii and Rapa Nui would all have fallen under New Zealand control. Not to mention more nearby islands such as Fiji, Tonga, Samoa, Nui and the Cook Islands. The only thing which stopped them was the authorities back in the UK. The colonial office was still convinced that taking more Pacific Island territory would only weaken Britain's position in the region. Their focus was mostly on India and China, not the Pacific Islands. So why did New Zealand politicians keep pushing the issue? Sure, geopolitics, resources and the like played their part, but it also had something to do with emerging nationalism, a desire for prestige and adventure, a desire to be a far-flung colony and the centre of an empire at the same time. One of these would-be Pacific adventurers was a young New Zealand businessman, Coleman Phillips, who later wrote that... In the 1870s, the glamour of the islands was full upon me, and I wanted to reach out, as many another Englishman had done in the past, when building up the empire. Nearly all these islands were there for the taking. Why should we not take them? Coleman Phillips was described in one newspaper as... A supremely vain, ill-informed and empty-headed young man. But other newspapers took his side... And as New Zealand historian Angus Ross wrote, he was far from the only young Pākehā to talk about the Pacific this way. The islands were to them what El Dorado had been to the Elizabethans, a region beyond the horizon which was virtually unknown, but which nevertheless was expected to be rich and wonderful. The idea of those riches inspired Coleman Phillips to suggest New Zealand set up a Polynesian trading company, similar to the East India Company. Basically, this would be a government-backed corporation with authority to go out into the Pacific, annexing territory, buying and selling goods, negotiating trade deals, all kinds of stuff like that. This scheme was seriously considered by Julius Vogel during his premiership, but it never got off the ground. The thing is, it made economic sense for Aotearoa to export stuff to the Pacific. But at first, this country didn't have the same need for Pacific imports. As historian Nicholas Hoare put it, As a new colony of its own with ample domestic resources, New Zealand hardly needed to seek new oceanic markets to invest in. Over time, though, that changed. As we discussed in a previous episode, New Zealand, Australia and the UK had a three-way deal for control of Nauru, which was strip-mined for phosphate during much of the 20th century. Aotearoa also developed a need for Pacific labour, and we'll talk more about that in a moment. A bigger factor in the 19th century push for a Pacific empire was competitive rivalry with Australia. Towards the end of the 19th century, the Aussie colonies were looking to federate into one single Commonwealth. That unification would create a new country, way bigger than New Zealand in terms of population, economics and geography. Grabbing Pacific Islands was a way of puffing ourselves up compared to our cousins across the Tasman. Richard Seddon put it explicitly when he said, The Australians will think more of us as a nation in years to come with islands of our own than as we exist now. But Seddon and the other New Zealand imperialists weren't imagining Aotearoa going off and conquering the Pacific by force. The idea was that Pacific Islanders would welcome a New Zealand-led empire. After all, the indigenous people of Aotearoa shared ancestry with the people of many of those islands. 
Some Māori MPs actually supported a New Zealand-led Pacific Empire precisely because it would enable them to rebuild connections with long-lost relatives. But that genuine connection also provided a justification for Pākehā politicians. Look, it's mind-blowing to think about this today, but back in the late 19th century, many Pākehā politicians were totally convinced they'd done an absolutely awesome job dealing with Māori. So in their minds, they were the perfect people to rule the rest of Polynesia, as one official put it in a report to Julius Vogel from the Cook Islands in 1873. Does it not seem as though Providence has intended such at least of the islands of the Pacific, as are inhabited by Polynesians, to be ultimately colonised by the British occupants of New Zealand? So the desire to expand into the wider Pacific had a moral dimension and justification. The idea was that Pākehā New Zealanders would uplift and civilise other Polynesian peoples, just as they'd supposedly done with Māori. Another big part of the moral justification for a Pacific empire was something called blackbirding. Blackbirding involved coercing or straight-out enslaving indigenous Pacific Islanders to work on plantations and mines in Australia, the Pacific Islands and South America. It's estimated 62,000 people were brought to work on plantations in Queensland and New South Wales alone between the 1860s and 1900s. Maybe the most brutal example of the trade was in 1862 and 1863, when more than 3,600 Polynesians were kidnapped or tricked aboard ships and taken to Peru. It's estimated more than half of those people died of starvation and disease. Not all Pacific Islanders were forcefully taken or tricked. Some agreed to work on plantations, although they were often unaware of the brutal conditions they'd experience. We only have fragmentary records on the role New Zealanders played in blackbirding. As historian Angus Ross explains... The degree to which New Zealanders participated in the labour traffic cannot be stated accurately, as many of the traders were extremely reticent about their activities. But sufficient evidence exists to show that New Zealand owned and operated vessels played a leading role in the recruiting of labour, especially for Fiji. There are only limited records of blackbirding victims being brought to New Zealand. The first was in 1870, when 27 men arrived in Auckland from Vanuatu and were put to work in the Onehunga flax mills. It was later revealed the ship's captain had bribed a local chief to bring the men aboard, casting serious doubts on whether they had come to this country by choice. New Zealanders responded with outrage, although that outrage wasn't always based on sympathy for these men. Instead, some were outraged that Pākehā and Māori families might be expected to live side by side with Melanesian people. An editorial in the New Zealand Herald said, We have received letters from several correspondents complaining with considerable bitterness of the odious sights to which their families are exposed by the manners and habits of these woolly barbarians. Not everyone was so hard-hearted. There were many New Zealanders who took a stand against blackbirding. The most famous is Bishop John Patterson, who headed the Melanesian branch of the Anglican Church. In early 1871, Bishop Patterson sent a long report on the blackbirding trade, outlining the kidnapping, murder and brutal treatment of Indigenous people. He urged British authorities to step in, saying... Imperial legislation is required to put an end to this miserable state of things. 
Stringent regulations should be made and enforced by heavy penalties. Bishop Patterson also argued that no action should be taken against Indigenous people who killed Europeans in revenge for kidnappings. And in a tragic irony, a few months later, Bishop Patterson himself was killed on Nupaku in Solomon Islands, apparently in retaliation for abductions by blackbirders. Reacting to his death, New Zealand's Parliament sent an official message to the Queen, saying... A grave duty rests with the British government, that of protecting the islanders of the Pacific against the infliction of wrongs by the hands of British subjects, wrongs little less grievous than those of the African slave trade. We, the Commons of New Zealand, will at all times be ready to assist Your Majesty's Government by every means within our reach in suppressing the practice. The next year, in 1872, Britain passed the Pacific Islanders Protection Act. The act was meant to regulate the trade in Pacific labour, outlawing coercion or kidnapping. But it wasn't very effective. It could only really be enforced in British territory, not in places like Fiji, Samoa and Vanuatu, where a lot of the blackbirding was taking place. This provided ammunition for people like George Grey and Julius Vogel, who argued Britain should seize control of those islands to end the trade once and for all. And in Fiji, that's exactly what happened. In 1874, the island's leaders ceded sovereignty to Queen Victoria. But while outright slavery was ended in Fiji, it was replaced by indentured labour, where people were contracted to work for a period of time. At first, the conditions indentured labourers worked under were horrific, although they didn't improve over time. The point is imperial expansion in the Pacific couldn't happen without a moral justification. It wasn't enough to say these islands were important for military or economic or nationalistic reasons. People had to be convinced that annexation was also in the best interests of the people living on those islands. The driving force behind this thinking was that New Zealand could share in the so-called three C's, Christianity, civilization, and commerce, which in their minds had to be a good thing. And in some cases, Pacific Island leaders actually did ask to become part of the British Empire to boost trade and provide security and stability. New Zealand politicians were disappointed that Fiji wasn't delivered into their control. Instead, it got its own governor sent by Britain. But that was OK, because there was already somewhere else they had their eye on. Samoa. As we've already said, the British weren't enthusiastic about seizing more islands in the Pacific, and in Samoa they had already come to an uneasy deal with the Americans and Germans. None of them would claim ownership of the islands, but each would maintain access to plantations and important harbours. New Zealand politicians were unhappy with this arrangement. They constantly lobbied British authorities to seize the islands outright. They even sent a guy called John London to Samoa to undermine the British consul by pushing Samoan leaders to support annexation. In 1886, the situation boiled over. The king of Samoa died and there was a dispute over who should become the new king. Over the next 13 years, there were two civil wars in Samoa, with the Americans, Brits and Germans each supporting different factions. At one point, seven warships belonging to the German, British and American navies got into a three-way standoff in Apia Harbour. 
They were so busy staring daggers at each other, they ignored warnings of an incoming tropical cyclone, which sank or severely damaged all but one of the ships. Eventually, in 1899, the three Western powers decided to split Samoa up. The Western Islands became German Samoa, and the Eastern Islands became American Samoa, because there's nothing colonisers like more than drawing big lines on maps. Britain decided against pushing for a claim to the islands, and in exchange, the Americans and Germans let them control Tonga, Niue, and parts of the Solomon Islands. New Zealand politicians were not happy that Britain had given up on claiming Samoa. As Premier Richard Seddon put it, The surrender of Samoa has disheartened the natives in the islands, disappointed the people of Australasia, and lowered the prestige of Great Britain in this part of the globe. And partly to deflect that criticism, Britain agreed New Zealand could control some of its new Pacific Island possessions, specifically the Cook Islands and Niue, which both became part of New Zealand on the 11th of June, 1901. Then, when the First World War broke out in 1914, Aotearoa got another chance at Samoa. On August 29th, 1914, New Zealand invaded and occupied German Samoa. The invasion was bloodless, but when the war ended, disaster struck. The 1918 flu pandemic. In this pandemic, Western Samoa suffered the highest death rate of any country in the world. More than 20% of the population was killed, far higher than the rate for Pākehā and even Māori. And Aotearoa holds some responsibility for that. On November 7th, 1918, New Zealand authorities in Apia allowed passengers to disembark from a ship called the Taloon, even though some of them were clearly sick. <coughs> the failure to maintain a quarantine was compounded by the insensitivity of New Zealand's colonial administrator, Colonel Robert Logan. Logan's most important job before this was just a local politician. He was out of his depth in this catastrophe, and in one account is said to have taken out his frustrations on the headmistress of a local girls' boarding school called Elizabeth Moore. When Moore asked for meat to feed sick students, Logan lashed out at what he saw as laziness. She said that Logan told her, I wish to inform you that no meat will be given to you. Send them food. I would rather see them burning in hell. There is a dead horse at your gate. Let them eat that. Logan also turned down offers of assistance from nearby American Samoa, which went into lockdown and was one of the few places on earth to keep the virus out. So it's probably not surprising that in the wake of the influenza epidemic, cries for Samoan independence grew, led by the Mao movement. The Mao organised boycotts, strikes and peaceful marches. New Zealand responded by deporting and imprisoning its leaders, mirroring tactics used on Māori who resisted colonial rule. And 11 years after the flu devastated the islands, a day came that's infamous. Saturday the 28th of December 1929, also known as Black Saturday. Two mile leaders had just returned from exile in Aotearoa, and people gathered to welcome them and marched down the main street of Apia, ignoring warnings from authorities to stay away. New Zealand police attempted to arrest members of the Mao in the march. When they resisted, officers opened fire with revolvers, then retreated to the police station. <laughs> 
They were pursued by the crowd, which caught one officer and beat him to death. Three officers on the roof of the police station fired rifles into the crowd, while another fired a machine gun. Ten Samoans and one New Zealander were killed. Among the victims was a senior Samoan chief, Tupua Tamasisela Lofi III. He'd been trying to restrain the crowd when he was shot in the back. His last words were, My blood has been spilled for Samoa. I am proud to give it. Do not dream of avenging it, as it was spilled in maintaining peace. If I die, peace must be maintained at any price. And the Mao honoured that message. The resistance against New Zealand rule remained non-violent. In the following months, the authorities cracked down on the Mao, outlawing the organisation completely. In January 1930, 200 New Zealand Marines and military police were deployed to hunt down about 1,500 members of the movement who'd retreated into the bush. They were led by Commodore Geoffrey Blake, who claimed... At the present moment, the Samoans are in the position of a sulky and insubordinate child who has deliberately disobeyed his father, and no peaceful persuasion will induce him to submit. New Zealand troops carried out a counter-insurgency campaign, launching nighttime raids on villages and arresting people suspected of supporting the movement. But the campaign ultimately failed, partly thanks to the efforts of Samoan women. When New Zealand authorities banned men from supporting the Mao, women picked up the slack, forming the so-called Women's Mao. Then, in 1935, the first Labour government was elected in New Zealand. It changed the law to recognise the Mao movement as a legitimate political organisation. Elections were held and the Mao came to dominate Samoa's two main political bodies, the Legislative Assembly and the Fono of Pule. However, Aotearoa would retain control of the islands until 1962. New Zealand's empire reached its largest point in the 1920s. Along with Samoa, Niue and the Cook Islands, Aotearoa also gained control of Tokelau in 1925, which was another little colonial gift from the British. New Zealand rule in other parts of its Pacific Empire usually wasn't as troubled as in Samoa, but it still came with plenty of problems. Part of the issue was that while politicians had dreamed of Aotearoa becoming a Britain of the South Pacific, New Zealand was not the UK. The British had legions of public servants to govern colonial affairs and a global empire's worth of resources to call on, including the Royal Navy. New Zealand did not. So instead, we appointed resident commissioners who had the authority to govern these islands virtually single-handed, as Professor Damon Salesa points out. In both New Air and the Cook Islands, the resident commissioner acted as a president of the island council, chief constable, chief administrative officer, postmaster and controller of customs. The resident also was in charge of education, public works, the treasury and public service and served as both Chief Justice and Chief Judge of the Land Court. 
So these resident commissioners had enormous power and very limited accountability. The people who lived in these islands couldn't vote the resident commissioner out of the job. They could only be recalled by Wellington. And as you might imagine, that situation didn't always end well. The most infamous case was Cecil Hector Larson, resident commissioner of Newair from 1943 to 1953. Larson often wrote to Wellington asking for more support, but was repeatedly turned down and effectively told to figure it out himself. He seems to have taken out his frustrations on the people of Nui. It's alleged Larson regularly bullied, abused and wrongfully imprisoned Nuiians. People were locked up for adultery, for holding hands in public or even for swearing. Some prisoners were then forced to work for Larson and were beaten and starved. On August 16, 1953, three young Nguyen's broke out of jail and hacked Larson to death with machetes while he was sleeping. As historian Dick Scott writes, The three young Nguyen's were not merely avenging themselves for the ill-treatment they had long suffered, they were, they believed, ridding the whole island of a tyrant. The trio were convicted of murder and sentenced to death. But that sentence was commuted to life imprisonment after a public outcry in New Zealand. Around the same time as the Larson murder, there was a global move towards decolonisation. It was a major objective of the United Nations, which was formed in the wake of the Second World War. Now, you might have thought that, given all we've discussed, New Zealand's Pacific territories couldn't have waited to cut ties with us. But it wasn't always that simple. In the decades since colonisation, the populations of many Pacific islands had grown significantly, but their economies hadn't. It was considered difficult or impossible to support those populations without assistance from Aotearoa. People in tropical Pacific territories also feared that severing colonial links might make it difficult for them to travel to New Zealand. That turned out to be a valid fear. In the 1970s, New Zealand authorities disproportionately targeted Pacific Island overstayers for deportation in what's now known as the Dawn Raids. Decolonisation also meant losing access to jobs. In the post-war economic boom of the 1950s and 60s, Pacific Islanders had flooded to Aotearoa to fill gaps in the labour market, especially in meatworks and factories. They were able to send money home to support entire communities. Moving to New Zealand also meant better educational opportunities for children. If people wanted to go to high school or university, they had to come to Aotearoa. So it's no wonder that people in New Zealand's Pacific Territories saw decolonisation as a double-edged sword and saw value in maintaining close links to Aotearoa. Samoans decided on full independence and became their own nation in 1962. However, Samoa retained close links with Aotearoa through a treaty of friendship. The Cook Islands became self-governing in 1965, and New Air followed suit in 1974, but both remain in so-called free association with Aotearoa. So while they elect their own governments and make their own laws, their people remain New Zealand citizens and use New Zealand dollars. As of 2022, the only inhabited dependent territory of Aotearoa is Tokelau. A majority of Tokelauans did support an independence referendum in 2006, but they didn't cross the two-thirds threshold needed to separate from New Zealand. But it wasn't like we flicked a switch and New Zealand's colonial history in the Pacific was gone. Its effects still linger in Aotearoa and the other Pacific Islands. One of the most obvious legacies is that Aotearoa has a massive Pacific island population. 
It's grown from about 2,200 in 1945 to over 380,000 in 2018. Those numbers are still rising rapidly, although these days the increase is mostly people being born in New Zealand rather than migrating here. And before COVID, another 14,000 or so would come for seasonal jobs each year under the RSE scheme. As Professor Damon Salisa puts it... Pacific Islanders altered many dimensions of New Zealand life. The high-profile examples are well known, as Islanders transformed New Zealand rugby and netball, literature, theatre, art and music. But the fundamental changes driven by Islanders were far more important, evident in the spaces of work, key trade unions and government. Aotearoa has increasingly come to describe itself as a Pacific nation. That's partly as a consequence of our growing Pacific population and the fading influence of the British Empire. While we Kiwis generally see ourselves as a plucky little underdog on the world stage, in the context of the Pacific, New Zealand is a big player. We invest hundreds of millions of dollars of aid funding in our Pacific neighbours every year. Our military and charity organisations also help with disaster relief and peacekeeping efforts. But let's not be naive. Aotearoa still views the other Pacific Islands through a geopolitical lens, and their leaders know from experience there is no such thing as a free lunch. And Pacific geopolitics is heating up, particularly with new players such as China and the United States entering the game. The stakes for the Pacific Islands, including Aotearoa, are high. All the more reason to better understand the histories that bind us together, for good or bad. Thanks for listening to the Aotearoa History Show. Make sure to follow or subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio or whatever podcasting app you use. You can also find a video version of this show on YouTube. If you want more New Zealand history podcasts from RNZ, why not check out the New Zealand War series, or Black Sheep, or Eyewitness. You can find them all at our website, rnz.co.nz forward slash podcasts. The Aotearoa History Show was made with support from the Ministry of Education. It's hosted by William Ray and Marnie Dunlop. It was written and produced by William Ray, and the executive producer is Tim Watkin. Our director is Duncan Smith, and our sound engineers are Phil Benge, William Saunders and Mark Chesterman. We had historical and editorial support from Mike Stevens, David Green, Bronwyn Houliston and Matai Smith. And a huge thanks to the dozens of reporters, presenters, producers, complaints managers and others at RNZ who lent their voice acting talents to the show. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.